Each week, as we've turned to the book of James together, we've started by reminding ourselves on the screen, this is a book about living faith. James is concerned in this letter to show us that true faith in Jesus makes a difference to our lives. It makes a difference to every part of our lives. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, James wants us to see that true living faith in Jesus makes a difference to the place we give to God in our lives. Now that might sound so obvious, it's not even worth saying. But James is going to show us two ways you and I can be tempted to act like we are God. He's going to highlight two areas of life where you and I might try to put ourselves in God's place. And as he deals with both of these areas, James' message to us is, let God be God. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 11, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter in verse 17. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1215, or in the larger print Bibles, 1883. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is God's word. And it calls us to let God be God in the lives of other Christians and let God be God in your own plans. Two areas where you and I can be tempted to try and not let God be God. First, in verses 11 and 12, let God be God in the lives of other Christians. Verse 11 starts, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. The word translated slander there is the same word that's translated speak against in the second half of the verse. So what does James have in mind when he says do not speak against a brother or sister in Christ? Is he saying there's no place for challenging one another or even rebuking one another? Is that what he's getting at? Well, no, that is not what James means, and we know that because he's just given these Christians 
a pretty robust rebuke back in verse 4. If you remember last week, in verse 4, he called them adulterous people. Plenty of other places in the New Testament call us to spur one another on as Christians. And sometimes giving one another a spur on means giving a word of challenge or even rebuke. So if James is not forbidding us to challenge or rebuke one another, then what is he ruling out here? James is talking about arrogant criticism of others. It might be arrogant criticism to their face, or it might be behind their back. Maybe for the majority of us, the temptation will be to do it behind their back. But either way, this is about passing judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not about those times when someone has obviously wronged you and you need to go and sort it out with them. Nor is this about those times when someone in the church is living in obvious sin that they refuse to repent of. The New Testament is clear. In those situations, the church is called to take action together, to deal with the situation. What we're talking about here is different. This is about situations where we have not investigated the situation carefully and uncovered some genuine sin. We've just seen or we've heard something that we didn't like. And we take it upon ourselves to pass judgment on the person we saw or heard. We decide that they're stupid, or we decide that they couldn't possibly care about Jesus, or they're not committed to the church, or they're being deliberately difficult. And we know because we heard them say this or saw them do that. John Calvin very often sums things up in a helpful way. And I've paraphrased his words a little, but this is how he explains what we're talking about here. He says, we wish others would live at our own direction. And so we dare to impose a law of life upon our brothers and sisters. We arrogantly hand out judgments on their deeds and words, as if our grim expression was to be their law. We blandly condemn anything that displeases our eyes. And it's not hard to think of examples, especially today. Why isn't she still wearing a mask? Why can't she be responsible? Or alternatively, why is she still wearing a mask? Why can't she move on? Or, why do they parent their children that way? That is not the way. How can they let their kids eat all that stuff? Why did they buy their kids that? Or, why does he think he can't do that on a Sunday? Why doesn't he loosen up a bit? Or, why did they come up with that way of caring for her parents? It's not going to work. Or, I can't stand the way he swaggers about like he owns the place. 
He doesn't do half as much for the church as I do. Or he's too loud. It's embarrassing. Or she's too quiet and timid. It's so frustrating. Or why do they do that during the songs? It's so distracting. Or why are these people so stiff and dreary during the songs? It puts such a damper on the worship. We wish others would live at our own direction. And so we dare to impose a law of life upon our brothers and sisters. We arrogantly hand out judgments on their deeds and words. So just to make sure we're clear about this, are we called to spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Yes, we are. If, for example, a brother or sister begins to withdraw from the fellowship, are we to be concerned about that situation? Are we to try and reach out to them? Yes, we are. In chapter 5 of this letter, James is going to encourage us to try and bring back those who wander from the truth. He will encourage us to try and turn sinners from the error of their way. And is the church called to deal with those who persevere in unrepented sin? Are we to take action? Are we even to be willing to take the most drastic action of removing them from the fellowship? Yes, we are. But that is not what this is about. This is about the reality that we are all different. And we see things differently. And when it comes to the many big and small decisions in life where there are various non-sinful choices that we could make, we are going to make different choices. And we will have different opinions about the choices others make. We will tend to think those choices are wise if they agree with what we'd choose, and less wise if they differ from what we would choose. But thank God, that is okay. It's okay that we're different. We don't have to try and make our brothers and sisters in our own image. God is at work making them into the image of his son, Jesus which is a far better image for them to be made into. So if a Christian brother or sister asks for your opinion on something, if they want to know what you think would be wise in their situation, then by all means tell them. But otherwise, let them work it out with God. And let's not give in to the temptation to question another's motives. Let's not assume they're being careless or intentionally disruptive or willfully difficult. Let's not assume they're trying to bring their kids up badly or make foolish decisions instead of wise ones. A couple of weeks ago, I read this. Believe the best about someone until they make it impossible to do so. Believe the best about someone until they make it impossible to do so. That's helpful. Assume your brothers and sisters in Christ do love their Savior. 
assume they do want to live for him and they do want to contribute to the church. Acknowledge that you can't know all there is to know about their heart and their motivations. Don't be arrogant and judgmental in your attitude to them and your words to them or your words about them behind their back. Believe the best about them until they make it impossible to do so. Until it's clear and obvious they're rebelling against Christ or doing harm to the church. And just to emphasize, this is not a call to butt out of each other's lives. It's not a call to keep our distance from one another or avoid discussing what's going on in our lives. Nor is it a license to ignore genuine warning signs in the life of a brother or sister. But this is a call to let God be God in the life of that brother or sister. Because they answer to him. And so do you. Look again in the middle of verse 11. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What does James mean in verse 11 when he says speaking against a brother or sister is actually speaking against the law? And judging the law. Well, he means the Old Testament law, the law whose principles still apply to us today, even if not all of the cultural details are the same. Earlier in this letter, James quoted from the Old Testament law, from Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Two verses back in that chapter, Leviticus says, do not go about spreading slander. And it's likely those are the specific bits of the law James has in mind here. If we speak against a brother or sister in the way we've just been talking about, we are not loving them. And we are speaking against the law that tells us to love them and that tells us not to speak against them. And by doing that, James says, we're not keeping the law, we're judging it. We're deciding that we know better than the law, which is actually deciding we know better than God, who gave the law. We're trying to be God in the situation, trying to impose our own personal law of life on that brother or sister. Instead, James says, we should focus on our own responsibility to obey God and let him be God in our own life. So one of the great challenges then of the Christian life is to care deeply about one another, to be genuinely involved in each other's lives, and at the same time to let each other be different. And make different decisions than we would. We love to say about other people, if I were him, I would do this. But in fact, if you were him, you'd do what he's doing because you'd be him. 
As God's people, we are bound together with deep bonds of fellowship. We must treat each other as family, not as distant strangers. And we must also let each of our brothers and sisters be who they are before God. With all of their individuality and all of their oddness as we see it, and all of the things we think we would do differently if we were them. Is that a challenge? Yes, it is. Do we need great wisdom from God to get it right? Yes, we do. But that is our calling. Now, if you are a new Christian, it might seem very odd that other Christians are supposed to be involved in your life. That is a biblical expectation you will need to adjust to. But if you've been a Christian a bit longer, the adjustment for you might be learning to dial back a bit, to ease up, and get comfortable with people being different from you and doing things differently from you. Let God be God in the lives of other Christians and let God be God of your own plans. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, just like we did with the previous verses, we have to be clear about what James is and is not saying here. He is not telling us that planning is a bad thing. The Bible repeatedly calls us to be good stewards of our time and our resources. That requires careful planning from us. Just read the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, and you'll notice how often Paul talks about his carefully worked out travel plans as he toured around planting new churches and revisiting established churches. There's nothing glorious about you and I wasting our time. There's nothing glorious about trying to run a business without a business plan. It is good to set goals and targets for our work. It's good to be intentional in dealing with our finances and lots of other stuff. You've heard the saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And the Bible affirms that. But what James is targeting here is the kind of self-confident, self-assured planning that actually forgets how little control we have over our future. Surely if the last couple of years have shown us anything, they have shown us that. How many business plans and holiday plans and wedding plans and even funeral plans were upended during the last couple of years? And leaving aside the pandemic, 
I've lost count of the number of people I know who have spent years planning carefully for their awesome retirement and fantasizing about their awesome retirement only to have their fantasy shredded either because their health took a nosedive or their investments got wiped out or their family self-destructed and they had to ditch the retirement plan and raise their grandkids instead. Planning is good, the Bible says, but self-confident planning is foolish. As God's people, we are to plan carefully and then we are to hold our plans very, very lightly. Because as James says in verse 14, we don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Our life on this earth is like a mist. It's like smoke. Megan likes to burn scented candles in our house. And when you blow one of those out at the end of the evening, how long does the smoke last for? Well, if you have the guts to lick your finger and snuff out the wick, there's no smoke at all. But if you blow it out like me, how long does the smoke swirl around in the air? Five seconds? Ten seconds? James says this present life is like that. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. So how foolish to be confident and assured about our plans for this life. The problem many people have is they only plan for this life. And they do nothing to prepare for the eternity beyond this life. As Christians, we are in the blessed position of knowing what eternity holds for us. We can have absolute confidence about that because God has told us. He has promised eternal glory for those who trust in Jesus and follow him. What God has not told us is what's in store for us tomorrow. Or even what's in store on our way home from church this morning. But we can so easily forget that. And we can set our hearts on what we, what we planned for this afternoon or for tomorrow or for our retirement. I remember talking to a Christian once about a position he had applied for. And he seemed to be dead set on it. So I asked him, if you don't get this position, could you live with that? And his answer was, no. I couldn't live with that. That is exactly the kind of idolatrous attachment to our plans that James is warning us against. So let's each of us ask ourselves, is there some plan I am so fixed on that I feel I couldn't live with it not coming into effect? Is there a goal I have set? An ambition that I have 
that I couldn't bear to miss out on. If there is, then we may be getting into the territory James is dealing with here. We may be in danger of forgetting or living in denial of the truth that God holds our future. It is in his sovereign hands, not ours. And God has not promised to fulfill all the plans we have for ourselves. He has no obligation to do that. He is God after all. He is committed to doing what's best, not doing what you or I think is best. God says in Scripture, I know the plans I have for you. And I will fulfill those plans. But your own plans, well, there are no guarantees about those. And so, verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Notice again, James takes it for granted that you and I will make plans. But he's showing we're to plan with God's sovereign control in mind. That's the difference between an arrogant scheme and a God-honoring scheme. A God-honoring scheme gives God full permission to revise the plans we have made, or even to tear them up completely and replace them with something totally different. Instead of boasting on our own great planning, the Bible calls us to boast in God's superior wisdom. That's important for us to see. We haven't got this covered just by training ourselves to say, Lord willing, all the time. That can become like a little tick we develop. Anytime we talk about what we're doing tomorrow, we drop in the words, Lord willing. Well, that's okay, but it loses its effectiveness if it becomes automatic and thoughtless for us. Just something we say. What this is about is not just saying, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. This is about living with a true openness to God changing our plans. Truly accepting his sovereign authority. And learning to praise him for the fact that he holds our future in his hands. Because he does know better. Always. Even when we have put all of our little brain power into coming up with our very best plan. Even then, God knows better. Far, far better. And so if our great little plan falls by the wayside to be replaced by his totally different plan, that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay because his plans are always best. Even when they upend our plans. Let God be God of your own plans. 
Now, so far, James has related that to God's sovereignty. But right at the end here, he adds another angle to this. When it comes to your own plans, let God be God because he is sovereign and because he has shown us what is good. So verses 13 to 16 are about holding lightly to the plans we make. Here at the end, verse 17 is about making our plans in accordance with God's word. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. In other words, just because you and I have accepted that God has a right to change our plans, that doesn't mean we can plan any old way we want. As a Christian, I cannot approach life with the attitude of, I have an entirely blank slate to work with here. We've been making the point that we don't know God's will for the time we have ahead of us in this life. But in the Bible, God has explained his will for the way we plan to use the time we have. So if we have plans that are based on selfishness or greed or deceit or getting our own back, then we don't plow ahead with those plans saying, well, God can change them if he wants. But until then, I'm going for them. No, as we make our plans, we evaluate them according to God's will set out in his written word, the Bible. And if the plans we are coming up with aren't in line with what the Bible tells us of God's will, then we don't wait for God to change those plans. We tear them up ourselves. And we start over. As Christians, we know there are certain priorities we ought to have as we plan. For example, making time to join regularly for worship with our brothers and sisters. And serving in the church. Using our God-given gifts to help share the good news. And sharing what we have with others through giving in different ways. We know those are priorities we must have as Christians. And so we incorporate those into our plans. That too is part of letting God be God of our plans. We cannot say, I have no time or money to spare for what the Bible calls me to because I've already made all these other plans. No, we start with God's priorities and we plan around those. Rather than starting with other priorities and then saying, sorry God, I've no space left for your priorities. James says, if we know what we ought to do, if we know the godly priorities that ought to be included in our personal plans, but we don't put those godly priorities in, that is not just bad planning, it's sin. Yes, our lives are all different. We all go through stages in life. We talk about seasons in life. 
In some seasons, we have more disposable time than at other points. At some stages, we may have more disposable income, perhaps. For some of our years, we may have lots of energy we can pour into using for God's kingdom. For some of our years, we may have hard-won wisdom we could use for God's glory. But all of us, whatever particular resources we have, we must plan to use them for what is good. Not to build our own little kingdom, but to give our lives for God's kingdom. And then, having planned to do what is good, we hold those plans lightly, knowing that God may well change them. When it comes to your own plans, let God be God, because he is sovereign and because he has shown us what is good. Do you see how this helps us not to abuse what James said back in verses 11 and 12? There, he said, our brothers and sisters in Christ answer to God, we are not their lawgiver. Now can you see, if you or I are tempted to try and exploit that in our own situations, if we're tempted to try and live selfishly and get away with it by telling others to leave us alone and mind their own business, read James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and leave me alone, if we're tempted to do that, then here in the final verse, James reminds us we can't do that. I need to mind my own business with God. Verses 11 and 12, do not give me license to tell other Christians to back off so I can live how I like. Verse 17 says to me, you can't live how you like. As a child of God, your great responsibility is to do what God likes. To make your plans and build your life around His will, not your own. Other Christians are not the lawgiver in your life, but God is. And the beauty of this is, all of this is not only our great responsibility, it is also our privilege. Because God's will shown to us in his word is truly and perfectly good. As verse 17 says, there are no better plans we could have for our lives than plans made in accordance with God's will. There's no better way to spend the days and years and energy of our life than in pursuing obedience to his will. We can only be blessed. Our peace and joy can only increase as we let God be God in every part of our lives. So as we close, why don't we just take a moment, quietly and personally, to make that commitment personally. Maybe to let God be God of some plans you're making at this very moment. Maybe plans about your finances, plans about your time, some decision you're in the middle of making about your future. 
or maybe some ambition you've been quietly and carefully nurturing for years. Maybe it's a very good ambition. But what would it mean for you to let God be God of that ambition? Would it mean any changes? Let's take a moment. Consider that personally. Speak to God about it personally. Our last song reminds us what a reassuring truth it is that our God is sovereign over us. This is a song the musicians have sung for us in the past, so hopefully for a lot of you it'll come back to you as they sing the first verse and the chorus for us, and then we'll go back to the start and uh, join in together. The song is sovereign over us.
Lord God, we bow to your sovereignty and we trust in your love. And now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Who knows the mind of our God? 
God that God should repay for from him through him to him is everything to God be the glory forever and ever to God be the glory forever amen oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments 